Well, we are in uh, part three of a 10-part sermon series called Gentle and Lowly, using as a framework a book by the same name. Uh, we've got some on the back table for you if you have not gotten one yet. We're using these 10 weeks to look closer and deeper into the heart of Christ for us, sinners and sufferers all. He describes his own heart in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That he's gentle means his most natural posture toward us isn't a pointed finger, it's open arms. And he's lowly, he's humble, he's accessible, and he's approachable. Each week we're exploring specific scriptures that build on this foundation and expose his heart for us. And hopefully in the process, it's transforming the way we think and experience him by renewing our minds from the teaching of the word of God. Today we're going to look at John chapter 6. You can Turn there on your, in your Bible or device, or it's even printed, uh, the passage is printed in your bulletin today. Let me give you a little bit of context about what is happening in this passage. So God has come to earth in the person of Jesus, and he's begun his earthly ministry. And in this chapter, John 6, the longest chapter in the New Testament, John records a couple of signs or miracles by Jesus. A public miracle of feeding 5,000 with five small fish and a couple of loaves of bread. And out of the public eye, he performs a miracle of walking on water to his disciples. So he's doing these kind of mind-bending things. And in verse 35, he makes this declaration. He describes himself as the bread of life. In other words, I'm the only one who can truly satisfy and fill the deep hunger that you have. And I'm the only one that can satisfy your thirst. So beginning in verse 35 and reading through to verse 40, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not lose, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So three things I want to talk about today as we consider Christ's heart for us from this passage in John chapter 6. First is the Father's will for us, then the Father's work for us, and finally the Son's word about us, will, work, and word. Giving heed to the first law of preaching, there can be no sermon without alliteration. <laughs> Will, work, word. Also, the second law, three points in a poem. 
There's going to be no poem. Just three points. So here goes. First, the Father's will for us. This isn't about God's specific plan for your life. Like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Not a spouse, job, college, etc. This is the Father's ultimate will for us. That he wants for us, all of us, before anything else. And Jesus states it plainly here in verses 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day, and here it is. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the Father's will for us, that we would look on his Son, Jesus, and believe, and that in believing in him, we would have life. This is God's deepest desire for us. Not just one time, but every day we would look on Christ, we would have a heart inclined toward belief. And I say that because even though we believe, it's often mixed with unbelief, isn't it? Um, like the man who, who, who was bringing his son to be healed by Jesus, and Jesus said, if you believe, you, you can do anything. And he says, I do believe. Please help me in my unbelief. So we can hold these things in tension. This is a story in Mark 9. It's fascinating. But in looking and in believing, we have life. The life that he has intended for us. This is his will. Throughout the Gospel of John, he explains that this is precisely why he came. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, every sphere of human life and every person. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send Jesus to condemn us. He didn't need to. Because the reality is our sin has already condemned us. You, me, all of us face condemnation because of our sin. No, God sent his son, Jesus, to save us from our sin and condemnation. So that if we would look to him, and believe, we would have life. That's why he came. Again, John 10, 10. The thief, the enemy of our souls, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they, you, may have life and have it abundantly. The reason I came is so that you could experience life, the life I created you to have. And then in chapter 20, John tells us uh, he's recorded a lot of the events of Jesus's life, but he's also left a lot of them out. But he says, the things I have recorded have a very specific purpose. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So when you believe, you get to experience the life that I have created you for. This is the Father's will every day of our life that you, that I would look on the Son, that you and I would believe every day. And by believing, you would experience life. That's the Father's ultimate desire and will for you. And for the sake of realizing that will, there's some work the Father does. Look first to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. We, we see this all throughout the Gospel of John. God the Father sent Jesus. John 3.16 again, for example. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He sent his son so that we can have life. So the first part of his work here is that he sent his son, but he didn't stop there. The scriptures tell us that he also draws people to himself. So if we're going to have life, we've got to look on the son and believe. And he sent his son so that we can look on him and believe. But then... He does a supernatural work of grace wherein he draws us to himself. And God's grace is so powerful and so beautiful and so winsome and so profound that it's able to and does overcome every kind of resistance we would have to it. This is, this is a doctrine the reformers called irresistible or effectual grace. This doesn't mean that God drags us kicking and screaming against our will like a lot of parents when they take their children to the nursery. That's not how God operates. Rather, it's that his grace is so powerful and so good that it can reach down and soften and change our will. It changes our heart. It changes what we want. He opens us up to his goodness and his kindness that leads us to repentance. This is what the grace of God does. Look again at verse 37. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And just a little farther down in verse 44, 44, uh, which is not printed in your bulletin, but it says this, no one can come unless... The Father who sent me draws him. Have you ever been just drawn to someone? Maybe a friend, a teacher, a coach. If you're married, I would hope that you would say your spouse. There's just something about this person that makes you want to be around them. You can't necessarily explain it. It's just kind of this magnetic thing. This is what Jesus is saying. No one comes to him unless God does a supernatural work of grace to draw them to him. And you and I can talk to someone we love and want to see come to Christ, or really to, to turn away from some entangling and destructive sin until we are blue in the face. Or I could preach my best, most theologically rich and engaging sermon ever. But until God does a supernatural work of grace in their heart, it will change nothing. How do we see this fleshed out in the Bible? 
Acts 16, verses 13 and 14, Paul and Timothy were in Philippi. And it says this, starting in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention. It doesn't extol Paul, Paul's, it doesn't extol Paul's eloquence, um, even though he was eloquent and deep and impressive. It wasn't about Paul and his ability. It was about God opening the heart of Lydia so that she would pay attention. And she became a force. Do you have any sense that God may be opening your heart, even just a little? You should pay attention. The Father's will for us is that we should look on Christ and believe and have life. The Father's work to make that even possible. He sent his son to us to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to free us from our sin. And then in a supernatural work of grace, he draws us to him. So the Father's will the Father's work, and finally the Son's word, his life-giving promise to us in verse 37. And by the way, this promise would have real purchase in first century Israel. The story that we read today of a man who, because he had started following Jesus, got put out, got cast out of the synagogue which, unless he recanted, would ultimately become a death penalty for him. He would have no community, no way to do business, and he would lose his Roman exemption uh, for uh, emperor worship, which would put him in mortal danger and prison. So Jesus speaks these words into a culture where the reality was that you could easily be cast out, and it would cost you. So he says this in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Over the first two weeks of this series, we've been seeing these beautiful and gracious invitations from Jesus to us, especially in our sinning and suffering, to come to him. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, all you sinners and sufferers, and I will give you rest. And then last week, talking about Jesus, our great high priest, who can sympathize with us in our every weakness. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And here, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Given all that, why would we not come to Christ? Well, speaking from a from personal experience, I can think of at least three reasons why we might not. Candidly, I don't think I need him. I'm good. You know, oh, when I need something or I'm in despair, I'll go. Not so much when I'm good. 
It's just so easy to live under the delusion of self-sufficiency when everything is going well. And then, again, candidly, I don't always see, and this is hard to admit, I don't always see my sin as being sinful. Does that make sense? It's like, well, that's not so bad, or that's no big deal, or that was just a passing or fleeting thought. I don't see the need for fresh forgiveness because I don't see my sin as being sinful. But this, too, is a delusion. But I think the thing that makes me slow to come to him most of the time is because I've sinned in some way and I feel intense conviction. Conviction, not condemnation. They're very different things. Romans 8, 1 tells us, promises us, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who have been called according to his But in that moment of deep conviction, when I have done something wrong, I just, and it's really wrong, I just can't believe in my heart of hearts that Christ's deepest desire in his absolute holiness is to be with me. That he wants me more than anything to come close in that moment. Maybe you've got your own reasons. Maybe you're fearful that he just wants to crush you in your weakness and vulnerability because that's how you've been treated by others. Those scars are deep. But what Jesus says here is such a significant thing. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever anyone at any time whoever comes to me I will never cast out I will never stiff arm I will never reject I will always receive I will always welcome the words rendered never in this passage literally not not in Greek I will not not cast you out are magnificent Whereas in English, this would be called a double negative, the second not negating the first. So if you're outside during the winter playing in the snow and someone says, don't you hit me with no snowball, well, then you're obligated <laughs> to hit them with a snowball. That's how double negatives work in English, but not in Greek. In biblical Greek, this isn't a double negative. It's called an emphatic negation. The second not radically intensifying the first. This makes not not more akin to never, ever, 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 ever ad infinitum. I most certainly will never, ever, 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 ever forsake you or cast you out. Never. He just could not be more emphatic. This is part of the argument for the doctrine of eternal security called the perseverance of the saints. But it's more deeply about the perseverance of Christ's heart for us. Thanks be to God 
I love the quotation from John Bunyan that Dane Ortland includes in the book. John Onion or Bunyan. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be the perfect name for like a podiatrist? John Bunyan. <laughs> He's commenting on this word, this emphatic negation. and He's commenting on it from the King James Version for this word, in no wise, like I will in no wise cast him out. That's what it says. He says, for this word in no wise cuts the throat of all objections. It was dropped by the Lord Jesus for that very end. And to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. And it is, as it were, the sum of all promises. Neither can any objection be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that his promise will not assail. But I'm a great sinner, say you. I will no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them, he wrote. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast now, as a child of God, you and I must realize that in his holiness, God hates sin. And he loves you. God is against your sin. And he's for you. In fact, in our most messy sinfulness, when we feel most unworthy, that's when he presses in more and, and he comes closer. We begin to understand this when we consider the hatred a father would have against a terrible disease afflicting his young daughter. The father hates that disease while loving her. And at some level, in fact, the presence of the disease draws out his heart to her all the more. And when God looks at us in our sin and our mess, he doesn't turn away from us. He moves toward us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've put your faith in Christ, he says, he sees you as a son or daughter and he knows your sin hurts and damages you. And he doesn't pull away. He draws close because he knows that you and I need him. This is who he is. This is his heart for us. Uh, Orland writes in the book, for those who do not belong to him, sins evoke holy wrath. How could a morally serious God respond otherwise? But to those who do belong to him, sins evoke holy longing, holy love, and holy tenderness. 
in all his holiness and all our sinfulness. He looks on us with tenderness. This is what we mean when we say his heart is gentle and lowly. That's his heart. He moves toward us evermore. So we've seen, but I skipped a whole quotation from Ortland. This is what we mean when we say that is gentle and lowly in heart. And Ortland writes this, when we feel as if our thoughts, words, and deeds are diminishing God's grace toward us, those sins and failures are in fact causing it to surge forward all the more. We feel that God must be running out of grace for us, but no, in those moments, his grace surges forward to us all the more. That's his heart. So we've seen the Father's will for us that we look on Christ and believe, and that in believing, we would have life. And we, we've seen the Father's work. He sent his Son for us, and he draws us to himself. And we've seen the Son's word. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So how do we apply our lives to these marvelous realities? How do we flesh them out? And I, I just want to say the answer is ridiculously simple, though for most of us, not easy. Here it is. When God draws you, come to him for mercy and grace. When the Holy Spirit convicts, come to Jesus for fresh forgiveness. Don't wait, don't hide, don't put it off. Whenever, whatever it is, come. My natural tendency, especially as an Enneagram 9, which is not an excuse, by the way, is that I feel, is that when I feel like someone's really mad at me or disappointed in me, or worse, I fear rejection of some kind is coming. My natural tendency is to wait, to hide, and hope whatever it is simply goes away. This, by the way, has never worked. And yet, <laughs> is a very, very hard habit for me to break. But this isn't how we're invited to approach God. He says, come to me, don't hide, never hide. I will never reject you, I will never forsake you, I will never cast you out. So when God draws you, come. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, come right then. That should be our default. We literally have everything to gain and nothing to lose. But as I said, ridiculously simple, just not easy. It can be very difficult to default to coming immediately to Christ in our sinning and suffering because it's not habit for us to do that. So how do we make it habit? Well, what makes habit? Practice, practice makes habit. We are told that pra practice makes you know, besides God, nothing in the universe is perfect. And if you ever saw something perfect, your head would explode. <laughs> we have no capacity for perfection. We can't produce it, and we can't discern it. At least not well. But practice does make habit. I 
I think about this often as I'm teaching flight students in the very beginning of their training um, because they have for years and years, sometimes decades, driven cars, which everyone knows you, you steer with your hand. But when you're taxiing an airplane, you steer it with your feet, with your rudder pedals. It, the rudder pedals actuate the, deflect the, the rudder, but they also turn the, front, the nose gear on the airplane. And it's such a blast to watch students in the beginning of their training come to an intersection where they need to make a turn and turn the yoke hard because the airplane just keeps moving <laughs> in the direction that it was going. And over time, over time, practicing, 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 it just becomes easy and natural. For I've got thousands of hours in airplanes. And I don't even think about it when I get in an airplane. I just drive it with my feet. I couldn't at first. Well, old habits can be very, very hard to break, and new habits can be very, very hard to form. But simply put, the more we practice, the easier and more natural it will be to come to him. Come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And whoever comes to me, I will, what? No wise. Never. Ever ever cast out. <laughs> Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.